please stand with me as we read God's word. And I'll be reading out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is God's word. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Let me take your seats. Well, good morning, Taproot. My name's Jim, if you haven't already heard that. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, why don't I uh, pray for us and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, we ask that you open open our minds, open our hearts, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. In Christ's name, amen. So if you're uh, visiting us here today, welcome. If you're not visiting us here today, if you're regular, welcome. You know, you're welcome too. But if you are visiting here and you want to maybe find out more about us, make a little bit better connection with us, have a, maybe have us connect with you. We do have these connect cards in the back of the seats in front of you. You can fill those out and uh, turn them in at the, at the welcome desk and uh, somebody will get a hold of you and tell us more about us. Now, <clears throat> the saying goes, when the Washington State Legislature is in session, hold on to your wallets, protect your purse. If you got money, move it to the Cayman, Island, Cayman Islands and throw away the password. Right? Right? I mean, they like, to, they like to raise taxes. Well, some of you may feel that a little this morning because Taproot, as you were here for our family meeting last week, we're a little financially tight. That is having an effect on our staffing. We are going to lose one. And to follow that up the next Sunday with the treasurer getting up and talking about money, maybe you have that little feeling like, uh-oh, you know. Okay. I want to put your minds at ease, relax. God does not want your money. He's got plenty of it himself. What he wants is you. And what he does to have you is he reveals more of himself to you. So that that revelation is so compelling that we will want to know him deeper and we will want to be like him. Um, specifically, our relationship with this generous God will cause us to want to be generous like him. Now, before I get up here this morning, somebody came and told me, so you're going to talk about money, and that could be boring. Are you going to do a little song and dance for us to kind of spice things up? <laughs> okay, my objective this morning is not to test how well the emergency exits in the building work. <laughs> I will spare you. You will thank me later. <laughs> okay, but again, if you're, if you're visiting here today and you're just checking us out of the church, we don't, we're not, we don't, you don't need to contribute. Just sit and enjoy, hear the teaching. Um, but if Topper Church is your home, if this is where you come to hear the Bible <clears throat> preached, if this is your community of faith, then this is your primary place to give. 
Now, we've been teaching on these things we call the essentials. And like the other essentials, giving is a, what we call in Christianity, a work or a, a deed that we do. It's a, a discipline, it's an action that we perform as believers to grow spiritually. Giving is one way to, as we say, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as the Bible says. Now, doing the essentials does not guarantee you grow spiritually. But not doing the essentials does guarantee you will not grow spiritually. As the Bible puts it, faith without works is dead. See, knowing God deeper is dependent on first knowing him and then responding to what we know about him. This is faith and works. This is what's, it's, it's what's key. It's why we teach the essentials. Now, the, um, <clears throat> again, the point today is God is a giver. He's the greatest giver. And we see that in the passage that Luis just read for us. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's talking here primarily here about spiritual and joyful living, not, not necessarily about, about money itself. But that's what he wants for us. He wants us to grow in joy and spirituality, and that is why he gives to us. See, he gives us all things, including the desire to know him. And knowing him as a giver is amplified by how we give, since by giving... We are responding, we're listening, obeying, and, and imitating him. We were made in his image. It is natural to want to be like him. So to do this, this morning, I'm just going to kind of go through Old Testament Gospels and New Testament to give you a sweep of what giving is like and how giving, is, as portrayed in the Bible, is a revelation of who God is. So... I'm just going to rip through these passages uh, and make allusions to them. Deuteronomy 8, 18, God reveals that he is the one that gives us the power, strength, and ability to earn money. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 10, 14 says that everything, everything in heaven and on earth belongs to him. It's all his. Isaiah 28, 26, here the Lord is actually taking credit for teaching the farmers how to grow food. So all that we have belongs with him, or <clears throat> all that we have belongs to him. And all that we, <clears throat> all that we know, at least that we know is good, comes from him. Now, in ancient times, the Jews were required to give a tenth, or a tithe is the word for it, of their income. Now, this was given for several reasons. It supported the tribe of Levi, who the tribe of Levi didn't, didn't inherit any land, so they had no land to grow food with. So they were given from everybody else a tenth of their income to, to live off of. And it was also given to support the operations at the temple and the great religious feasts that the nation would have. And it was also given to support the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. So what you see here is God is demonstrating himself as a giver. He's directing his resources in order to provide for those specific needs within the nation of Israel. 
<coughs> excuse me, been fighting a cold this week. <coughs> Pardon me if there's, anyway, you know the drill. You got a cold, you know. So God is directing these, his, his resources to be, go to specific needs. And in the Old Testament, to not tithe meant you were robbing or stealing from God. Now, we also see in the Old Testament simultaneous giving of a tenth when Israel would, when they would win a war, you know, against someone. Or individually when someone received a sudden, you know, burst of wealth. Um, it was a way of saying thank you and recognize that God had given them the victory in war and that God had provided the economic windfall. God is the giver. Tithing recognizes that as a way of saying thank you. Now, I don't teach that we are to tithe today. And the reason being is the Gospels in the New Testament have a little bit fuller picture of, not different, but a fuller picture of what, uh, what giving is about. The tithe, however, it is a helpful principle because it gives us an idea of what an initial starting point would be for what we call sacrificial giving. It's enough that you can really begin to uh, feel it when you're giving, it the, giving sacrificially. So what is sacrificial giving? Sacrificial giving is that which results from making choices to spend less on yourself. <clears throat> it means having a smaller economic footprint. It means choosing a less expensive lifestyle. It means fasting from desired yet costly purchases. It means giving up costly habits, etc. Sacrifice means pain now in exchange for reward in the future. So let's look at some of the little deeper heart issues. And for that, we now move to the Gospels where, uh, when, when Jesus shows up. Now, he makes money a big focus when he came. In fact, he talks more about money than he talks about heaven and hell combined. It's a big deal. And what he's trying to do, at least I think, He's trying to expose the heart and motive behind people's behavior, particularly with money. He's, he's trying to shift their focus from just this earth to the broader focus of, of heaven and what's going on. In particular, what is going to happen at the end of his time here. See, he spends three years preaching and preparing everybody for what's going to happen over three days. I think what he's doing is he's preparing us and preparing Israel at the time to understand what the father was about to do with, by sacrificing his son at the time we call Easter. Jesus wanted Israel to understand that. And so this was one of his primary emphasis when he, when he was teaching. Now there's several issues that he speaks to. See, we tend to trust in our wealth to meet our needs for security, comfort, enjoyment, meaning, identity, value, purpose. I mean, I can keep going. <clears throat> this is what we call materialism. It's the word for it. And it's looking to have our needs met without Jesus. Materialism is a belief in wealth that either minimizes or completely ignores God or anything spiritual or transcendental. 
Materialism attempts to manipulate us and it attempts to manipulate others around us to our benefit. Now, another thing he speaks to is what's called um, legalism. Now, legalism is where, and particularly what Jesus would address, is some would see their giving as that which makes them special as believers or more worthy of God's love because of what they were, of, their, of their giving. Now, this form of legalism, uh, thinking we are good enough to merit or can perform good works to earn God's grace. I do good, I give, God, you're going to give to me. Prosperity gospel, for those of you that are aware of that. Legalism attempts to manipulate others and attempts to manipulate God. See, both materialism and legalistic, um, uh, legalism about money are manipulative. They're dangerous and, and wrong. Both are a form of idolatry, is what the New Testament teaches. Now, wealth itself is not bad. It's not bad. It is deceitful and it is temporary. Jesus said that whatever we value, whatever we hold, whatever holds our affections, whatever we treasure, whatever we protect, that treasure becomes the one thing that consumes our mind, our emotions, and our conscience. This is Matthew 6, 21. The problem is not money. The problem is our hearts, which are easily deceived. And we want them to be deceived. See, Jesus taught that we have a binary choice. Wealth and God are both masters. They want our souls. They require our souls. They both want all of us. It's an either-or choice that we must make as believers. We will serve wealth or we will serve God. Jesus said there's no third option. There's no, there's no way you can do both at the same time. This is Matthew 6, 24. So he is, he's hammering this. Now in the first century, so, so just so we have perspective on this, there were basically two economic classes. There were the, the poor, and the poor typically, that meant you earned just enough money in one day that you could survive that day. You really didn't have enough money for tomorrow or next week or anything else. You, every morning you started over. Not that different from what we see with the homeless today. They live day to day on what they got. Now, there were a few people in the, in the, um, in ancient times in the first century that were rich. Now they had money, food, property, status, connections, privilege, they could last for days, weeks, months, maybe even years without really having to work. Their tomorrow was provided for. Check out the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Jesus gives this parable to the crowd and then with his disciples off to the side, he explains it more, more fully. And uh, what this is, is he's, he's, he's giving an illustration of how various people respond to the teachings and the instructions from, from the Bible. 
And the response that people give that's most typical of the economic class that we live in today <clears throat> is in verse 22. And here Jesus warns that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness and richness, riches of the, the uh, haha, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. They choke it. See, the problem with serving wealth, materialism, regardless of your economic class, is that our wealth is slowly choking our ability to hear God and, to ch and have him change us through what we get out of the scriptures. That's the teaching of that parable. It happens slowly, so we don't notice it. Money, temporarily, satisfies our desire for security, comfort, enjoyment, meaning, uh, meaning, identity, value, and purpose. It does, temporarily. It is deceitful because those desires are evidence of our hunger for God himself. Feeding our desires with money satisfies us, like I said, temporarily. We feel good for the moment, but over time, our soul is becoming dull and sensitive to what the Bible tells us. We are deceived into believing that we are okay, but again, we're slowly being choked. So this, this deception, I said, works slowly over time. The choice of who we are to serve, therefore, needs frequent review for believers. We need what we call self-examination and, as necessary, confess, confession and repentance. I'll talk a little bit more about that right at the end. Now, what I wanted to show right now are 24 common financial words that are used in the Bible to describe the gospel. Now, if you're like me and take notes, don't worry about it at this point. This is going to be in the, in the, sermon, uh, in the sermon notes that we send out during the week for, for our discussions during the week. But I want you just to look at those 24 words. Think about this. If you're a banker, an investment analyst, an accountant, or a bookkeeper, this is your language. If you are in business, a contractor, a merchant, you're in retail, retail sales. This is your language. If you are a consumer, you buy stuff online, you buy stuff at a store, you borrow money, you spend money, this is your language. This is the language we use. See, when we're using money, this is also... This is also the theological language of what Christ did for us on the cross. The New Testament uses these, and the Old Testament uses this language to describe what happened at Easter. So, in effect, when we're, our daily lives, when we're dealing with money, we're actually talking gospel terminology, just maybe not mentioning Jesus. But he's the point of all this. See, money and the pursuit of material things can easily become, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, see, without, without Jesus, this language that we speak merely becomes materialism. 
Jesus was adamant about wealth and money. I think his goal was to wake us up, to break that deception, to warn us of a danger so that is so insidious and deadly. Money no longer, money so closely resembles what Jesus did for us, and we can easily pursue our earthly needs and forget our spiritual lives. We can forget what, we, you know, what some of this stuff really means. Money in the pursuit of material things can easily become an idol, and our lives, um, in our lives, because it mimics the gospel language so closely. Wealth is a counterfeit gospel. Now, in my house, I have smoke detectors in a lot of my rooms. If one of those goes off, you know it. It, it, it screeches. I will go to that room because I will want to see from my own eyes and smell with my own nose why that went off. I want to verify that there's, you know, because sometimes you get false alarms from those things. Now, I also have in my house a single carbon monoxide detector. Now, carbon monoxide, on the other hand, you cannot smell it, you cannot see it. And when that alarm goes off, it never has, but if it does, I need to get myself and everybody else that's in that area out into fresh air before we go unconscious. Because if you go unconscious, somebody else doesn't pull you out, it will kill you. I can't verify that the carbon monoxide is there. I have to just trust that that detector detected it and it went off and I know what to do. I need to get out of there. See, I see this in how Jesus is warning us about the self-deception that comes from wealth. Now, self-deception, that means you don't see your own self-deception. That's what it means. We need to trust Jesus' warning on this. It's, it's, it can be dangerous stuff. So we move from the Gospels now into the New Testament letters. And what we see here is a further clarification about God as a giver. Now, the passage we read earlier, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through you, by his poverty, might become rich. Um, check out Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus is talking about, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Again, in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, we as his lost and broken creation were so valuable to the Lord that he was willing to sacrifice to purchase us back. He already owned us. On the cross, he bought us back. We're owned twice. See, that is a God that gives sacrificially, painfully, that he might have us forever. And that joy propelled his giving. He gives in such a way that we don't have to give anything ourselves. It was total. This is what we call grace. This is what we call the gospel. See, the point here is giving should be joyful because God was joyful in giving so he could have us. Remember the parable I said earlier about the, how riches choke out biblical living? See, joy comes from experiencing the freedom from our selfish and materialistic nature. Joy comes from the release of the worry and bondage that we are under 
because of our pursuit of wealth and concern for the future. Joy comes from the deeper understanding of how much God has given us, namely the gospel. We can experience joy through how the Lord and we can experience joy through how the Lord uses our money to bless others. Our individual giving helps support our gathering as a community, even this morning. Our giving helps bring others into the community. Our giving blesses those who are in financial need. Our giving helps others be thankful to God. All this is intended to bring joy to the giver. If we want to know God as a giver, giving sacrifice can help open our heart, giving, uh, giving sacrificially can open our hearts and minds. Now when I say can, I'll repeat what I said earlier, because giving is like all the other essentials we are teaching on. Disciplining ourselves to study the Bible, to pray, to fast, to give, all this stuff, does not guarantee you will grow in Christ. However, if you avoid the essentials, I guarantee you will not grow in Christ. Ask the question this way. How can anyone expect to understand what Jesus is like as a sacrificial giver unless you also experience a little bit of sacrificial giving yourself? To make this a little more specific, it's my contention that unless a believer learns to sacrificially uh, give, their understanding of the gospel is a bit immature, it's limited, it is vulnerable, and it is fading. The believer will know, I mean, every believer knows that Jesus saves them. And, you, you know, we understand that. But do we want to go deeper and understand more of his character? If a believer doesn't give, or nor does he give, or they give sacrificially, how can that believer grow and mature in the gospel, which is all about Jesus' sacrificial giving to us? They might understand the concept of giving in their minds, but you know, that knowledge alone will do little to ignite our passions. We see God as a giver using believers as a channel for his giving. God does not need your money. He doesn't. It's his already. But your neighbor does. And consider this. The gift that you, um, the gift that you give might be how your neighbor gets introduced to the God who gives. See, when we give, we experience more of who the Lord is. He is a giver. We're giving like him. When we experience the joy of giving, we become closer to him, more like him. We identify with him, which makes sense. We were made in his image. That's what we're supposed to be, is like him. Now, let me make something really clear at this point. Giving is revealed in the New Testament as voluntary. A believer does not have to give, nor do they need to give sacrificially, uh, because they are still loved unconditionally, even if they don't give at all. Giving is voluntary. Why do I say this? 
because no one forced Jesus to sacrifice himself for us. That was his choice. Therefore, he volunteered, well, he volunteered to die for us, so giving for us is voluntary. But we also see what else in the New Testament, just for example, we see in particularly 2 Corinthians um, <clears throat> chapter 8, chapter 9, that area, we see poor Christians, remember what I said poor was, we see poor believers who were so compelled by the love of Christ that they were giving beyond what their budgets would allow. Why was that? So we must ask the question as wealthy believers, which we are, is there something holding us back? Why do some not give? Why do many who give struggle when you talk about giving sacrificially? Why do some give sacrificially but still experience that reluctance, that compulsion, or even resentment when they do give? Well, I'm going to give four possibilities. There may be more, but these are the ones I could think of. First off, that individual might not be a believer. Now, that's no slam on unbelievers, but just think about it. Um, how can someone expect to understand the joys of knowing God, be it through giving or other means, if they don't know him personally in the first place? So that's a possible reason. I, and I'm not saying people are, are not generous. Americans, on the average, give somewhere to be 2 to 3% to charities, at least what they report to the IRS. You know, so giving does go on. It's, it, it, it's not that unbelievers are not, don't feel generosity, but knowing God, knowing him intimately. If you don't know him, then what would drive you to know him more? Uh, <clears throat> Second, a believer may not have the money to give as they desire. Now, this happens a lot. In this case, the person needs all the money they have just to just to live with. Now, I know many believers have seasons or period of time when they, they don't have much money. Uh, these times are often caused by some major event. You know, if you change jobs, if you're moving, if you go through a health care crisis that costs you something, if you have a major financial loss, or if you're making a major purchase. And there are also just life transitions where things are difficult. You're starting school. You're getting married. You're getting divorced. You're having kids. Uh, you're retiring. You're aging. Often these leave us financially limited. But these times, um, it may be difficult or even not possible to give at all. Uh, we understand that. But these times should be more of the exception rather than normal life. Having no money to give definitely, should, definitely could be an event. But what if it's become a habit or a lifestyle? Now, the third possibility, uh, going back to the parable of the sower that Jesus gave, is that the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches have choked Christ's words. The person in this case, they're a believer, but they lack the joy, the excitement, the passion for the Bible. This person does not feel the urgency 
to read the Bible, apply it to their lives, or hear it preached. The passion to know Christ that comes from a deep appreciation of his sacrifice is muted. The person does not feel they need to give. Now, lack of passion to know and follow Jesus can affect our spending habits and our lifestyle as well. I mentioned the difference between events and, and habits before. See, what, what we see in some believers that habitually pursue wealth to the point they do not have anything left to give. In some cases, we see habits of not giving, habits of not budgeting, habits of spending all that one has, habits of credit card borrowing, habits of seeking pleasure and fulfillment through money. See, these patterns or lifestyles can even put the believer in an endless financial crisis. It's like they never get out. In this case, we see a believer who is choking from wealth. Now, if someone is repeatedly unable to give, is this not evidence that their master is money instead of Jesus? Is this a sign that their master, in this case money, is repeatedly telling them no when they really want to give? See, it's back to that question of serving one or the other. And, and the fourth possibility is that the believer is arrogant, trusting in their wealth to provide enjoyment and their needs. And I take this from 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, which I'll read to you. This is where Paul tells Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up treasures for themselves, a, for, they, they, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. He says, command the rich. That's a that's pretty broad brush. And that's us. That's us. So I want to make this really practical for believers. I'm not going to talk about budgeting. Uh, we, we'll do that in the class someday. That would, definitely would bore you. But um, when we come to these scriptures, we need to examine our lives which means we need to pray and think about how we give. If we need to, make confession to Jesus. It's a good idea to share this discovery with somebody that you trust. And repent is the word we use, or to change. Now, here are some steps of examination and repentance. Uh, remember my illustration about carbon monoxide detector? Listening to the Holy Spirit and listening to the Scripture. If, this, if, if these things set off an alarm in your spirit... Maybe that's the Holy Spirit saying, okay, you need to pay attention to this. Now, I'm going to give a bunch of suggestions. You don't need to respond to all of them. Just start with what the Holy Spirit shows you as I go through them. First off, you're not a believer? Talk to us. We have some fantastic news. Are you a believer? But you're not part of a local church that you call home or identify with? Well, um, 
you haven't found that church, find that church. Settle in and give. See, repentance means you need to find that church and give. Maybe you have found a church but have not yet committed yourself. Uh, Do you benefit from the teaching of that local church? Repentance means I'm making that commitment to that church. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to show up on more than just Sunday. I'm going to find a way to serve. See, every believer, I contend, I think I can back this up from the Bible, every believer needs to have a church home where they are seen and known by other believers. It's not enough just to slide in and get the teaching. You can do that online and nobody can see you. You need to be a place where people look at you and they say, okay, you heard this on Sunday and I was there with you, but I'm not sure I see it in your life. That is what church provides. Now, a little salesmanship here. At Taproot, Sunday's not our only time together. We have smaller gatherings during the week in the homes of various members. These home gatherings, or HGs as we refer to them, are where you can be seen and known more fully. You know, you're in a room with 8, 10, 15 people week after week. They get to know you. If you're interested, check out our welcome desk afterwards. Somebody can tell you more about those, tell you, where they, tell you when and where they meet. Another question, do you know where your money goes? Self-examination, in this case, means making a personal budget. I'm old school, that's paper and pencil. Budget is where you you list all of your expenses that you have over a period of time, like a week, I'm sorry, like over a month or maybe over a whole year. And you also list on the other side what your income is. And you total it up and you compare those two numbers. Hopefully, what you make is able to afford your lifestyle. If it isn't, if you're having to borrow to maintain that, then something's out of balance. The point is, you know where every penny goes, and you know why. And you're comfortable with that. Are you always short of money? Are you using credit cards to pay bills and eat with? Now, I use a credit card to pay bills. But at the, at, when the credit card is due at that time of the month, it's all paid off with money I already have. So I'm not incurring any interest. But there are some that, well, the credit card comes out and they're buying groceries, they're paying the bills, and that balance on the credit card is getting up to the point where they're just paying the minimum. You're not in a good place. You need to connect, you need to connect yourself to a financial advisor and repent of how you're spending your money. Are you giving, are you not giving at all to your local church? Okay, well start small. Everyone can give something, even if it's only a dollar. That's still giving. Start there, because starting small, you can work from that. And you can begin to experience the thankfulness that you feel for, being, for having to contribute to what, because uh, God uses that money. Now, maybe you're giving, but 
It's not regular. It's not rhythmic. It's not weekly or monthly. Um, and maybe you feel reluctant or, com- or under compulsion to do that. Well, reluctance or compulsion. The Bible says don't give if you... <clears throat> now I can't remember the verse. Second Corinthians, somewhere in there. <laughs> we are to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, but joyfully. Okay, if you feel reluctance or compulsion, that doesn't mean, okay, don't give. That means you need to confess and repent and have God change your heart. It's sort of like, you know, you can love your neighbor or you can hate your neighbor. And being indifferent to your neighbor really is hatred. So if you don't feel the compulsion to love your neighbor, is it okay to hate them? No. You need, your heart needs to be addressed so you can love your neighbor. Same way with giving. And reluctance or compulsion, those feelings, it may be just simply evidence that materialism has been choking you. That's maybe how you first feel it. If you're in that situation, don't put this off. Because over time, the reluctance will grow and get stronger. And the desire to give will get weaker. Now, once giving becomes a pattern or a discipline, it's time to think about sacrificial giving. Again, sacrificial giving means less for you, smaller economic footprint, less expensive lifestyle, fasting from desired yet costly expenditures, giving up costly habits, etc. Time to consider that. Maybe there's some lifestyle changes I can make that allow me to do that. Well, now you're entering into, I'm making a sacrifice. I don't want to belittle giving a dollar a week, but a dollar a week is very small sacrifice, unless you're a kid and that's your allowance. You know, a dollar a week is not very much, is, 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 you're not going to start to enter into that sacrificial uh, understanding that comes from giving more. Because you really don't have to think about giving a dollar other than just remembering to do it. Do you repeatedly sacrifice to give but experience regret or resentment? This happens. This happens. All I can say is Jesus says we will have our reward in heaven. Don't lose hope. He promised he will deliver. Our sacrifices, that's what he said, give, sacrifice, and you will be rewarded in heaven. And also, for many of us that give on a consistent pattern of time, you know, it's kind of easy to forget the sacrificial aspect of that. Um, you know, if, if we go through something like a cut in pay, or if the legislature gets in session and our taxes go up, um, you kind of learn to, okay, tighten up your budget, bring back your lifestyle a little bit, get back in balance. It becomes the new normal. At least if you're financially responsible, that's what you should do. But it becomes a new normal. You get used to living that lifestyle. The sacrificial part that may have brought you to there fades over time. Now, what I've found helpful, what we found helpful in our family is anytime something changes, you know, if, if, I mean, I'm retired, I don't get raises, but Janice does. So if we get a raise, it's time to look again, okay, why did that happen? I mean, is, is God blessing us so that we can bless more others again through giving? 
if we get a major financial windfall. You know, maybe I discover I really can save a bundle of money on my car insurance through Geico. <laughs> Boom, I saved some money. I saved some of the Lord's money. What does the Lord want to do with that? I'm not saying he wants you to use Geico. Okay. <laughs> but you get the point. Uh, and the other thing we do is typically in the summertime when I get to it and we redo our financial budget as a family, we look at it. Okay, this is where our money's going. Is this, you know, is it time to think again what sacrifice it is? And sacrifice doesn't have to be a big thing, but it is a thing. It's, it's, it's again, uh, it's, it's again reminding myself of what Christ did on the cross and saying, I want to understand enough of that pain and the joy that comes after it to appreciate more what Christ did for me. Now, don't get me wrong about automatic donations. As your church treasurer, I love automatic online donations. I write checks to families that have regular monthly bills. I like to see the money coming in regularly. And I do it so I don't forget to do it. But the potential is I will forget the sacrifice it took to do it. Once your lifestyle is, is, is adjusted, like I say, it, it, um, um, maybe it's time to read, re, <clears throat> time to time, reevaluate your, your giving. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in that. Because you may find some cash that can be freed up to again experience more joy through giving. Okay, band, uh, you can come up at this point. See, giving does not change our hearts. The Holy Spirit does, Spirit does that. And he does that, in this case, so that we can give more freely. Now, the thought of personal sacrifice in giving does challenge our unseen materialistic attitudes. Confronting those attitudes through confession and repentance frees us to give, frees us to understand more of who Christ is, and allows us to live out a little deeper, more uh, richer experience of the gospel itself. And that is how the Holy Spirit changes our lives. This is how God, the God that gives, gets more of us. So we're going to have time of music now and singing. During that time, uh, we have communion here set up for, for believers. You know, feel free during that time to come up. You take a bit of a piece of bread and you can dip it in wine or grape juice. But it's a time again where we can reflect back on what Christ did for us on the cross and ask the Holy Spirit to um, illuminate something in our life. And maybe we need to make a confession. Maybe we need to share that with somebody close. Uh, Anyway, come up and during the music, take the bread and the wine, have your own time by yourself or with your spouse or with, with your friends, and just pray and thank the Lord that he gave his life for us. Also, during this time, if you have kids in, in, that are over in Tapper Kids and you want them to come in here and experience our, our singing, go get them, and I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you... 
uh, open our hearts, that you speak to us, that your Holy Spirit move in our midst, and that you uh, just give us more of yourself as we give ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.